All right, now before we get into the message this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. And I know those of you that hate change are starting to just shrivel up right now. You know, here he is again. He's going to make us like switch seats or something like he did that one time. I know you're already freaking out a little bit. I'm going to let you stay in your seats today. Um, but you are going to have to get in groups of about two or three, three or four at the most in your rows there uh, in order to do this. I know you're going, I don't know the people in my row. Well, get to know them. That's going to be the first part. You should have already done that during the greeting time anyway. So if you forgot or didn't do that, now's your time. Uh, but you, I'm going to get you together. Get together. In just a minute, I'm going to get you together in groups of three or four. And you've got a, you got a little project today. And you'll notice at the, at the bottom of the outlines that we've been doing over the last few weeks, there have been some questions, kind of some homework. And, and some of you have done a really great job of sending me back through my, through my email your answers. But not everyone has done that. And this is not a time to criticize those of you that have not. This is just a time for you to be able to participate uh, in that. And so I'm going to put up on the screen one of the questions that we ended with last week that was at the bottom of last week's outline. And some of you all have already sent me wonderful answers. And thank you for that. I am, I am growing in Christ because of the interaction that I'm having with you guys through these emails. But this, is, this was the second question that you had, uh, that you were left with last week, kind of your homework for the week last week. And now what I want you to do is you're going to get in groups of three or four right there in your row, and I want you just to take about three or four minutes and discuss this question together. Now, if you weren't here, don't feel awkward. Surely somebody in your group will have been here, and they've probably forgotten most of what I preached last week anyway. But, but you can get together in, in groups there and just discuss this question. It may be completely fresh to you. If you need a little help, uh, Titus chapter 1 is where we've been, where we're going to be again today. You may want to look at Titus 1 verses 5 through 9 to give you a little bit of refresher. Take four or five minutes, and this is your question of the day. As we're talking about church leadership, how is the Bible standard for church leadership different from the world's standards for leadership? Okay, everybody in the room, groups of three or four, ready, set, go.
All right, take just one more minute and kind of finish up your discussion. I know some of you are all right in the heart of it right now. But take another minute or two and, and finish up what you're discussing there. All right, those of you that are the big talkers, give your final thoughts to your group, and then Kent's still over here preaching. I gotta, I'm not waiting on him. We'll be here all day. <laughs> okay. All right, now here's the part that's going to make you really squirm in your seats. Now I want to hear from you. I saw, I saw some faces that were pretty intent during this discussion. Yeah, I know. I saw one back there <laughs> and a few right in this area over here. And uh, so I, what I want to do and I know I'm not going to make, I'm not going to force anybody to do this, but uh, if you heard something in your group or if there was something that came out in your discussion that you really would like to share, this is an interactive time for us to be able to learn from one another. Maybe there was something that just really stood out to you in that discussion. You don't even, you don't even have to claim ownership for it. You can blame it on somebody else in your group if you want to because you'll be the one with the microphone. You can say whatever, uh, but you are doing this before God this morning, so we'll remember that. But if you had something in your group that kind of stood out, and you wouldn't mind to share that with us as a congregation, uh, I will come and bring you uh, this microphone, and you can share with us this morning uh, a thought on this. How is the Bible standard for church leadership different from the world's standards for leadership? Who's going to be bold and go first this morning? I see several of you pointing to your neighbors. This is like the youth group all over again. They're always... <laughs> Call on him, call on him. Thank you, Roland. I knew I could count on somebody. I'm going to run all the way back here to the back corner. Yeah, I need some exercise. There you go. Uh, in our little group, the girls had some good ones. Uh, how's the Bible standard for church leadership different from the world's standards of leadership? Uh, theirs was because it was uh, based on faith and love and spirit. It's the topic and the focus of the direction and just the the different discussions that you have. It's all based on that. Amen. That's excellent. Thank you, ladies. Other other thoughts? Our group, we decided, we were looking at the scriptures, and it seems that the Bible standard for leadership is based on the Word, grounded in the Word of God, not a lover of self. I think that sometimes the world standard today is based on how many letters you have after your name, your degree, and what. And not that that's a bad thing, but that I think it's different there because he he spoke to men of faith that God had taught. All right, somebody else this morning. <laughs> I'm still seeing people pointing each other out. <laughs> Uh, 
You know what I used to do in, when I was a youth pastor? When you would point somebody else out, you had to be the one that would, would respond. Some of you may remember I did that a few times in <laughs> the youth group. So I should, I should inf- enforce that law today. But somebody else, Pat. I just thought it was great that our group said that, uh, that uh, church leaders always had the best interest of the flock in their minds and not, you know, self-centeredness. All good stuff. Let's take one more. Let's get one from the youth this morning. If you all pick on somebody, I'll let you point somebody out. Yoshi, will you will you share with us this morning? I know she doesn't need the microphone, but this is for recording purposes. So, Well, okay, it's, I'm kind of just paraphrasing from what you said last sermon. This is a sermon, isn't it? Okay, yes, I'm new at this. Sue me. Anyway, that I think the Bible standard is that church leadership is too much for one man to handle because today – we always see these churches, like these big churches with one man leading it, and eventually that man falls, and so does the church. But in the Bible standard, you have more than one leader. That's pretty much it, y'all. Okay. All right. Very nice. Very nice. All right. I know a lot more could be said this morning. And next week, you can, comp- you can come prepared. We'll probably do this again uh, next week and in the coming weeks. I just think it's helpful for us. Uh, even this whole deal of, of preaching, this should not be a one-man show. This should be a, a really an interactive experience. As we get into the Word of God together, this is not me just dumping out on you uh, spiritual knowledge. This is an opportunity for us to interact together with the Word of God. Now, in, in doing that, we need to make sure that we have the right goals in mind. We, we could easily come to this book with some very self-centered goals, as was mentioned over here, that that leadership shouldn't be self-centered. Well, neither should we as as followers of Christ. But sometimes we come to this book with some very self-centered goals. God, what do you have for me today? It's kind of our mentality. And we read the scriptures through the lens of our own selfishness. But as we've been walking through this book of Titus, I hope you're beginning to see, and I hope you're going to see even more and more in the weeks ahead, the collective nature of this book. That as God gives this blueprint for the church... What we find here is that, first of all, the church is not meant to be complicated. We complicate this thing called the church with our own sinfulness, our own selfishness, our own thinking about how things ought to be done. And yet, what God has given us in this blueprint is really pretty simple. And we want to seek this morning, as we look at the Word of God, to not just ask, okay, God, what do you got for me today? But to ask, Lord, how would you desire to change me today as a result of your word? Do you see the difference in those two attitudes towards Scripture? God, how would you desire to change the way I think, the attitudes that I have, and the actions that I'm going to do as a result of the word today? So if you would, open up to Titus chapter 1. Yes, we are still in Titus chapter 1, but next week we'll be in Titus chapter 2. So, yeah, we're moving along real quickly here. Today we're going to talk about God's design for guarding the deposit. And Emily, you may have to take the reins on this thing because it's not one. There it goes. It is working. All right. (laughs) Or not. 
Yeah, you're going to have to take the reins on this one, Emily. Sorry about that. It's just not one to work for me. All right, so God's design for guarding the deposit. The idea of today's scripture comes out of 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we, and we find at the very beginning of, of 2 Timothy, Paul is laying out for Timothy the bare-bones message of the gospel. And then in verse 14, he gives this command. He says to Timothy, this, this church leader, he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And you could, if you take that verse out of its context, that could mean a whole lot of things. But within its context, you need to understand that the good deposit, the treasure that, that Paul was encouraging Timothy to guard, was the gospel itself. The good news that because Jesus, died, Jesus Christ died on the cross in the place of sinners, that all who believe in him can have eternal resurrection life just as he had when he rose from the dead that third day. This, this gospel message, he says, guard it as you would any treasure. And the, and the reality that Paul is playing on there is this, that all of us in our existence, we will guard that which we treasure. Isn't that true? Parents, is that true for you? If you value your children, won't there be a portion of your parenting that is all wrapped up in guarding your children, keeping them safe? If you value your home, so many of us today have home security systems or at least uh, bars and locks on the doors, those sorts of things. We guard what we treasure. That's just the human nature. It's the way God created us. And we take that principle and we apply it today to the gospel and ask this question. Is the gospel precious enough to us that we are willing to faithfully guard it? And how do we go about doing that? Quick review before we get into the scriptures today. We've been talking about church leadership. And the review, just three quick points about what we've been seeing. We've been talking about these guys that are given to the church, this gift to the church known. We call them today pastors. But in the, in the New Testament, they're more often referred to as elders or overseers. As we talked about, elder in the New Testament never means an old person. It's always referring to a leader, either in the church or in the synagogue. And so we see these, these leaders that are also known as overseers, also known as pastors. And the first point of review is this. These are the church's servant leaders tasked with meeting the spiritual needs of the congregation. These are the church's servant leaders. The second thing we've discovered over the last few weeks is this. The role of the pastor that we talked about last week is this, that pastors are called to teach, to lead, and to care for the church. This is their role, to teach, to lead, and to care. As we talked about last week, we see pastors doing all kinds of things, but if you get down to the brass tacks of what this book teaches about the role of a pastor, it's basically these things, to teach the scriptures, to lead the flock, and to care for the people of God as a shepherd cares for his sheep. The third thing that we found in, in summary leading up to our scriptures today is that these pastors in the New Testament church are always pictured in plurality. There's always more than one in each church in the New Testament. Now, this flies in the face of what many of us have grown up with, myself included. The pastor was always the guy whose name's on the sign, right? And my church sign growing up had uh, a lot of black parts behind the pastor's name where they had marked out the guy that was there before. We went through six pastors in 19 years while I was growing up, so there was a lot of replacing the name on the sign. But when we think about 
a pastor, we generally tend to think about one man. And yet when you look at the New Testament example, you find that the template was, the blueprint was, a plurality of men. Even as we go back to verse 5 of Titus 1 where he says to Titus, here's your charge, here's your, purp- your purpose, here is my command for you for the island of Crete. I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. And our understanding would be that in that day, each town, if it had one church, they were doing well. So multiple elders in each church, multiple pastors, different from what we're used to, and yet this is the constant picture in Scripture. Today's main idea, as we jump into the next part of Titus chapter 1, is this. These pastors, these leaders of the church, the main idea for the day is this. They must protect the church from false teaching. It's going to be a little bit heavy today as we talk about this subject of false teaching. We don't talk about this as much as we probably ought to. The New Testament talks about it. In nearly every book in the New Testament, you will find some mention of false teaching. And there are at least five books in the New Testament that are almost completely devoted to this subject. Which ought to tell us something, right? If the Bible says a lot about a matter, shouldn't that be important to us? Shouldn't we take notice and shouldn't we listen up? And the reality is, far too often in our churches today, we really don't listen like we should, but I hope we will this morning. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we look at Titus chapter 1? We're going to begin where we left off last week in verse 9 and make our way down to verse 16. Talking about these leaders in the church and what kind of qualifications they must have, Paul says to this young man, Titus, who was given the task of appointing these elders, he said, he referring to these elders, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You can be seated. Father, as we explore this scripture today on what is not really an easy topic for us, probably something we'd rather just not think about or hear about, But because your word speaks so often, may we understand our need today to take false teaching very seriously and to understand what our response should be in Christ. So help us, Lord. Give us understanding and help us to apply what we hear in our daily living. 
In Jesus' name. If you were to compare the paragraph that we just spent two weeks in, verses 5 through 9, with verses 10 through 16, you see a lot of comparisons and contrasts being made. It's as if Paul's goal in instructing this young man named Titus, who was given the role of appointing these church leaders, is as if he's saying, okay, in verses 5 through 9, here's what this man must be. And then he's saying in verses 10 through 16, and here's the alternative. He demonstrates in those early verses, this is what this man must be about. This is what he must do. And then in in these verses we're going to look at this morning, he's saying, and this is what he must stay away from. This is what he must rebuke with his ministry. And so as we talk about false teachers today, I want to help us to be able to, to understand based upon this particular paragraph how we can identify false teachers. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, when I depart from you, there will come in these false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. That's a biblical idea. We didn't make that one up. Wolves in sheep's clothing will come in among you to disrupt the flock and to bring destruction and dissension. And so as we talk about these today, how do we recognize the true from the false? How do we know if a particular teacher, a particular leader is true to the things of God, or if we're dealing with the false teacher. First of all, this morning on your outline, and what we'll see here in this paragraph is this. We identify false teachers by their content, by what they actually teach. Now, now we live in a culture right now where we're not quick to judge other people's teaching. In fact, our our society is so wrapped up in this idea of pluralism, the idea that basically all roads lead to God, that as long as you believe something passionately, as long as you are totally sold out to whatever it is you believe, and as long as you're not really physically harming anyone else with those beliefs, then we're fine with it. Just believe whatever you want to believe, and believe it firmly and fully, and we're good to go. That's what our culture says. But that's not the idea of the Scriptures. We live in a culture that denies the very existence of absolute truth so much that some people will say there is no such thing as absolute truth. The only problem with that statement is this. It's self-contradictory in nature. When you say there is no absolute truth, you just made an absolute statement. But that's the kind of world we're living in right now. That's all confused and wrapped up in its own ways of thinking about things. And we're not quick to look at teachers and judge them based upon their content, and yet the Scriptures urge us to. There was a church in the New Testament day that the believers at Berea in Acts chapter 17 were commended because it says when they heard the apostle Paul's preaching, of all the guys you would probably be not not too excited. It says the Bereans went home and looked at the word for themselves to see if what Paul was teaching was true. And, of course, they found it to be so. But how many of us in our churches today leave home after, leave church after a sermon and we go home and we seek to see, did what the pastors say today really line up with the Scriptures? We just kind of take it for granted. Well, he's the preacher. He ought to know what he's talking about. But we need to identify teachers, specifically false teachers, based upon their content. 
What do I mean by that? First of all, look at verse 10. The first question you need to ask is this. This is probably the most important question. Do they teach the gospel of grace? He says, for there are many. Notice the word many there. That word can't be translated a few or some. He says, there are many who are insubordinate. They're empty talkers. In other words, they say a lot, but they don't really teach anything. There's a lot of words coming out of their mouth, but when you really look at the content, they're not really saying anything of value. And they're deceivers. And then notice how he describes them, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, that's a party I want to be a part of. I mean, you got your Republicans and your Democrats, and I don't really care a lot for either one of those, and so I'm going to join the circumcision party. Because that sounds like the fun group to be a part of, doesn't it? I mean, couldn't you imagine telling somebody, come over to my house, we're going to have a circumcision party. That's going to be great. Now I'm going to stop there with those jokes because they could get really far off base. So we're going to, but the idea of, of, this, of this group was this. They're what was known in the New Testament as the Judaizers. And what these guys were teaching was this. They had all come out of the Jewish religion, and their idea was a Jesus plus type of gospel. They were fine with you professing faith in Jesus as long as you were willing to add to Jesus the Jewish law and customs and rituals and beliefs. So it was a Jesus plus Judaism type of understanding of the gospel. Here's the, here's the thing, though, about any Jesus plus type of gospel, whether it's Jesus plus Judaism or Jesus plus a host of other things that we see in our culture. Any Jesus plus gospel ultimately becomes a gospel minus Jesus. Did you catch that? Any Jesus plus gospel ultimately becomes a gospel that is minus Jesus, because you find with these kinds of false teachers that are adding to the gospel saying, well, yeah, I have your Jesus, but also you need to do this, that, and the other. You need to stay away from these foods. You need to observe these holidays. You need to make sure that you don't go to these types of places or hang out with these types of people. They start adding to the gospel these rules and rituals and regulations. And what you find ultimately is they're really not saying anything about Jesus. Jesus is just the stepping stone to get to their agenda. We need to be very careful. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's not of works because if it were, Ephesians 2 says we'd boast about it. If my salvation was 1% my doing, I would glory in that 1% more than all the 99% that God did. And that's why it has to be 100% God's work. That's why we need an understanding of the gospel that proclaims it is a matter of grace. It is the gift of of God. It's not something that I earn by being good or by doing certain things and not doing other certain things. It's not something that I make God happy because I don't eat these foods or, or I don't go these places or I, I observe these particular holidays. It's not about me measuring up. Because here's what happens with the Jesus plus gospel. If you buy into a Jesus plus gospel, you ultimately will find yourself in one of two pits it will either be first of all a pit of your own pride because you actually think that you can measure up to the standard or it will be a pit of your own misery because you constantly find yourself falling short and that's where grace comes church 
Grace flies into the face of that picture, and grace comes as a Savior who didn't come saying to you, well, do this, do this, do this, and you'll live. No, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It was all about what Jesus did for us and not about what we would seek to do for him. As we talked about last week, God is not concerned about our doing until he knows that he has hold of our being. We're living in an American church culture that says, well, if you go to church regularly and you read the Bible and, you, and, you're, and you're a relatively good person compared to the rest of society, then God is pleased with you and you must have a way to heaven because you're a good person. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, folks. The Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. And the righteous one, the very Son of God, came and took the place of sinners at an old rugged cross so that all who would trust in him by faith would be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We, we use that verse, and yet, for some reason, it's as if we add to the verse, yeah, call on Jesus, that's all fine and good, but also, you better be at church every Sunday. You better read your Bible every day. You better pray continually. You better witness as often as you have the opportunity. And we keep adding these things to the gospel. Not that those things are unimportant, but those should not be the root of our salvation. Things that we do in order to gain God's grace, they should become the fruit of our salvation, the results, the product of God's grace. Do you see the difference? The difference is huge. It's the difference between life and death, folks. The gospel of the Judaizers was a gospel of death. A gospel that would leave you in your condemnation. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that saves. And so we must ask of every teacher, are they teaching the gospel of grace? Because there are many false gospels. 1 Timothy, another book that talks a lot about false teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, If anyone teaches a doctrine, a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up, that means prideful, with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Another stark picture. Paul's not pulling any punches here, either in, in, in Titus chapter 1 or in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He is selling it straight and saying, you need to understand, there are many false gospels out there. Make sure that you're walking in the only good news that saves. It's very important. And I want to say one more thing before we move on, folks. If we think that false teaching is just out there, out there in the media. False teaching is out there in our culture. False teaching is out there in our, in our schools. False teaching is out there in our relationships outside the church. If all we see is false teaching is out there and we've got to guard against it, we can come into our little holy huddle here and be safe from it, you are missing the picture that's being painted here in Titus chapter 1 because Titus is not being warned against false teaching that was happening out in the culture at Crete. He was being warned about false teaching that was occurring in the body of Christ. False teachers had infiltrated the body of Christ. These Judaizers were meeting with them for worship. 
these Judaizers were seeking to take leadership of their small groups. These Judaizers were seeking to come into their homes and they talked a good talk about Jesus, but there seemed to be all this other stuff that was being added to a Jesus plus gospel was coming forth from their lips. And church, hear me. False teaching is an ever-present danger for the church of Jesus Christ. And we have much more danger of false teaching from within than from without. Because that's how the devil works. He wants to undermine the credibility of the gospel in any way that he can and lead us away from grace, lead us away from the truth about Jesus, lead us away into all kinds of philosophies and thoughts about how things should be. Man-centered ideas are everywhere, even in the church. So we identify our false teachers by their content. Do they teach the gospel of grace? Secondly, why do they teach? Do they teach for greedy gain? They teach for greedy gain. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, these false teachers, they must be silenced. That word silence literally means muzzle. It's the picture of taking a muzzle and putting it on a barking dog. He says, these false teachers, they must be muzzled since they are what? They are upsetting whole families. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. By teaching, for what reason? For shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This is what you'll so often find with false teachers. The reason that they teach is not because they want to lead people to Jesus, but because they want to put some dollars in their pocket. There's one particular false teacher out on the airwaves right now who made this statement. He was referencing in 1 Corinthians where it talks about uh, the message of the gospel being foolishness to the world. And he said, well, if the Lord has called us to be fools for Jesus, then I might as well be a rich fool. Now, I hope that that strikes you the way it ought to. Because if that's the gospel that you've bought into, that says if you're going to be a fool for Jesus, you might as well be a rich fool, and I'm going to urge you today, trade in the gospel that you're believing in and come to the Savior who suffered for you. And the Bible says that just as he completed his work through suffering, so must we complete what we have been given through suffering as well. We are not promised prosperity in this life, no matter what you hear on the TV screen. But we are promised the peace of God, which transcends all our understanding. We are promised that in the midst of the most difficult days, we have a God who will remain faithful. He will never leave us or forsake us. We are promised that if we have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that that salvation will be sufficient to carry us on into glory. There are many false gospels out there and many false teachers who teach simply for greedy gain to line their pockets with the money of those who would come seeking to get their ears itched, seeking to hear a message that makes them feel good, seeking to hear a message that gives them a false promise of prosperity, a message that's more the American dream than it is the gospel of Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 2, another book that's about false teaching, 2 Peter chapter 2 says, There will be false teachers among you. A promise there, folks. There will be, not there might be or there could possibly be, there will be false teachers among you, Peter says, who will secretly bring in destructive 
heresies, even denying the master, that's a reference to Jesus, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many, notice what it says many again there, many will follow, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, there's that idea again, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Jesus himself said, narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many find the broad and destructive way. But few find the way of life. You want to know what the way of life is this morning? Jesus himself said in John 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we identify these false teachers by their content, but we also must learn to identify them by their conduct. It's not just what they're saying, it's also what they're doing with their lives. We identify them by their content, but also by their conduct, by their actions. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Two questions you can ask again. The first one refers to their actions and the fact that their actions will always be divisive. Look what he says there in verse 11. We come back to this idea. They must be muzzled. Why? Since they are upsetting whole families by their teaching. They're upsetting whole families. They're causing division and dissension in the body. And I think this is a twofold reference when it refers to families here, not just families as we think about them, but understanding that oftentimes in the New Testament day, churches were meeting in homes. They were meeting in homes together, and these false teachers were coming into these homes, and they were stirring up division by teaching things that they shouldn't have been teaching. They were adding to the gospel these Jewish ideas, or they were adding these ideas that, well, you just need to have this secret knowledge that that only I can impart to you to really be a child of God. They were adding to the gospel of grace, and in the midst of that, they were stirring up division and dissension in the body. Unless we think that we're too good for that or have somehow risen above that let me just say this church over the last several years we have seen dissension and division rise up in our church at various times and i want to make a statement this morning and i and i challenge and i would give you a challenge to test me on this one I believe that every division and dissension in the body of Christ has its basis in a false teaching. But that's where it comes from. Every division and dissension, it's not just because we have personality conflicts. It's not just because somebody wants to have green carpet and somebody wants to have red. It's because at the core of it, there is a false teaching that we are believing that causes us to be at odds one with another because the Bible calls us to unity in the church. Not a false unity that we just go along to get along, but the unity of the gospel. That we are so grounded in the word of God and in the gospel of truth that secondary issues stay secondary and primary issues stay primary. We keep our eyes fixed on the cross and fixed on our Savior. But when we see divisions and dissension in the church ranks, I believe because it's at the core of that, there is some sort of false teaching that has arisen within the church and has led people astray to be at odds with one another. And that's what you were seeing in the church at Crete, and that's what I believe we have seen in the past several years. So we identify them by their conduct. Their actions will be divisive. In Titus chapter 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, he says this, 
As for a person who stirs up division, you ever known somebody like that? It's like they're just constantly seeking to stir the pot. They love controversy. They love to be able to cause divisions among people. As for one who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, Paul says, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. But aren't we so tempted to put up with people like that? Paul says we can't afford to put up with people like that. Because they will cause divisions in the body of Christ that will cause disfavor to fall upon the gospel. And so you warn them. You don't just leave them out somewhere. You go and you warn them, as we'll see here in Titus 1. And then you warn them again. And then after that he says, very clearly, have nothing more to do with them. Lest you follow in their destruction. Their actions are divisive. Secondly, their actions are defiled their actions are defiled you look at their pattern of living and you don't see there a standard of christ's righteousness now again we're not saved by our self-righteousness we're saved by the righteousness of christ which begins to be exhibited in us because of the work of the holy spirit as god sanctifies us he makes us pure this is a very important understanding for us folks that purity in the Christian life is not something you work up, but something that's worked into you by the gospel. Purity is not something that you arrive at by your effort. Purity is the product of the grace of God in you. I want to look at that verse 15 together for a moment. I want to put it up on the screen because this is a verse that has been radically misused at various points. In verse 15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. If we were to take that verse out of its context, we could use that verse to justify all forms of immorality and ugliness. In fact, there was one pastor who, he, he became aware that one of his young, younger members was involved in a particular form of immorality, and the pastor was seeking to restore this young man, went to the young man and confronted him with his sin. And in response, the young man actually quoted the first part of this verse. He said, well, pastor, the Bible says, to the pure, all things are pure. And so because I'm pure in Christ, what I'm doing here it really isn't sin. That's the wrong understanding of this verse. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. But he's speaking to a group of people who are beginning to believe this false notion that purity comes from what you do or don't do. So if you observe these particular holidays, if you stay away from these particular foods, if you don't drink or smoke or hang out with those who do, then that's where purity comes from. That's not what the Bible says, though. The Bible says you'll never arrive at purity that way. You may arrive at pride that way, but you'll never arrive at purity that way. But the idea when it says to the pure, all things are pure, what he's saying is, if you have found purity in Christ, Christ has come in and redeemed you from your sin, then it doesn't matter about holidays and what foods you eat or, or drink or stay away from. It's not about those things anymore. He's not talking about sin, blatant sin issues here. He's not giving you a, a blanket statement to go out and sin all you want to. That's what uh, sometimes our American version of Christianity does. No, he's saying it's not anymore about obedience to the law as a means of earning God's grace. It's about because of God's grace, 
Now you have freedom in so many things. Jesus, really what Paul's talking about here is what Jesus laid out in the Gospels. When he says it's not what goes into a man that makes him impure. It's not the things that you eat or drink that make you impure. It's what comes out of your mouth. That's what makes you impure because it reveals what's in your heart. What comes out of your mouth reveals the dissensions and the, and the ugliness and the anger and the hatred that lies within your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Jesus said, purity doesn't come from what you eat or drink or what you don't eat or drink. It comes from a heart that's been changed from the inside by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with those thoughts in mind, as we think about identifying false teachers and false teachings that are constantly emerging within our churches how do we guard the gospel of grace how do we do what paul commanded timothy to do guard the good deposit by the holy spirit living in you guard the good deposit how do we do this how do we guard the gospel of grace the first should be obvious to us we got to know the truth, folks. We have got to be grounded in this word. Please hear me, church. It is not enough just for your pastors and your Sunday school teachers and your small group leaders to be grounded in the word. You must know the truth. You must be grounded in this word for yourself. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go off and get a seminary degree or you're going to go to Bible college. It doesn't mean that necessarily, but it means daily you need to be in this word. We need to be memorizing this word. We need to be living according to this word. We need to know what the word says. Why? Because the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the truth. Those who would seek to spot counterfeit money in our culture. They're trained in that way. And their training involves knowing the true characters of a dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill for that matter. All the things that are, that are built into those uh, pieces of currency in order to make them the true deal. They, begin to, they become so intimate with the real thing that when they see the fake, they can't help but notice it. Is that us in the church today? Are we ready to spot the fake because we are so acquainted with the truth that we couldn't help but know it? Jesus said in John chapter 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Folks, I believe that there is a place we could walk in the Christian life where you could be free from the dangers of false teaching. But that place is only found when you are abiding here. Abiding in the word of God, not abiding in the church. That's where the false teaching seeks to find its home. Not abiding in a, in a safe small group or Sunday school class, but when you're abiding in the word of truth, then you can know the truth that sets you free. Secondly, how do we guard the gospel of grace? We must rebuke false teachers for a purpose. Look at verse 13 there. Look what he says. Why do we rebuke false teachers? Rebuke them sharply for what purpose? That they may be sound in the faith. And we might expect Paul to say here, rebuke the false teachers so you can kick them out of your church. 
It's not what he says, is it? Rebuke these false teachers that they may be sound in the faith. Now, again, coming back to chapter 3, we're going to see in a few weeks, he says, you rebuke them once, you rebuke them twice, and after that, if they refuse to repent, then you have nothing more to do with them. You don't allow them to, to hang out with you to continue to teach these false things, but rebuke ought to be aimed at repentance. Every discipline that takes place within the church ought to be aimed at restoration. We ought to seek the good, even of those who would teach falsehood among us. We ought to desire them to know the truth that will set them free from their own false teaching. But there are two kinds of false teachers, folks. There are two kinds of false teachers. There are those who will repent and turn from their false teaching to the true gospel, and there are those who will not repent and will cling to their falsehood. But here's the only way you know the difference. The only way you know the difference between the false teacher who will repent and the one who will not is the rebuke. This is the beauty of the rebuke. How sad would it be for someone to believe in and keep teaching a false gospel all their days and never have someone who had the true gospel come to them and seek to set them straight. And at the same time, there will be those who will refuse to repent and other measures must be taken because of the treasure of this gospel and finally today i'll leave you here we must pray for the church to have strong qualified capable leaders who can protect the gospel and notice there it is again in the plural folks if you think that guarding the good deposit of the gospel of Jesus Christ is all one man's job. It's the guy whose name ought to be out on the sign. We're missing it, folks. This is all of our duty, but primarily he's talking here to church leaders, and he's saying you've got to rebuke these false teachers because you've got a gospel to guard. You're going to have to go after these things. It's not enough just for us to cling to the truth. We've also got to rebuke error. Why is that? Because this error is like a cancer. What if a doctor came to you, you went to the doctor this next week, and the doctor did a scan of your body and came back and told you that he found a little spot of cancer. And instead of dealing with that cancer, you just said, you know what, I'm just going to seek to eat really healthy foods and just ignore that cancer diagnosis. That's kind of what it's like when we seek to cling to the truth without rebuking the errors that exist. We must deal with the cancer of false teaching and understand its destructiveness and that it will kill the body because that's its intent. False teaching does not have the purpose among us just to stir up little issues. False teaching is a cancer that seeks to kill the body. And it must be removed. It must so church, I'm calling you to pray that God would raise up in our midst men who know this word, who are so convicted by this word that they live according to it day in and day out. This word flows from their mouths. They cling as a life rope to the gospel. That they would raise up among us capable qualified men who could lead us in guarding this great deposit. And that we would see the beauty of what would take place 
when a group of men called to this task would come together and in a spirit of unity be able to look at everything that is taught in the life of this body and measure it according to the word of God and help to keep us from error, these guardians of the gospel. This is by no means one, no means one man's job. It does belong to the church. But here, here, Paul says to Titus, find some men who are ready for a task such as this. And our response as the people of God will be this. I left you with Hebrews 13 last week, and this is Hebrews 13, 17 this week. So obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That phrase sends shivers up my spine as your pastor. Those of us who teach will be judged more strictly. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What would be of advantage to you? This beautiful gospel picture of a group of men who are so sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ and so united with one another in the faith that they stand as the guardians of the gospel for this body in unity with one another, maybe not agreeing on every secondary doctrine, but agreeing on the most crucial thing, and that is this, that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, lived 30-plus sinless years on this planet some 2,000 years ago, and he who had no sin of his own became sin for us at an old rugged cross so that everyone who would call upon his name might find salvation that because we are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. And that truth needs to be proclaimed and guarded. Would you commit to pray in this way? To pray for this body, that we would stay true to the gospel and that God would raise up among us men who would lead that charge in this community. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to the end of our time together today, God, would you help us to wrestle once again, afresh and anew with the gospel. To truly ask, is this the truth that has set me free? Am I really staking my existence on the life of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago by the name of Jesus? who claimed to be the Son of God and ended up on a Roman cross. And then it was said of him that three days later he rose from the dead. God, will we wrestle with this gospel? Lest we foolishly cling to something that we don't believe, or perhaps worse, cling to something that's not true. 
And God, we praise you for the truth of the gospel this morning. We praise you for our Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, but all who call upon his name will be saved. So as we wrestle with the gospel, Lord, I pray that those among us who have yet to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus that today might be the day of salvation. That in these moments as we come to this age-old song, Amazing Grace, that they would know that by the amazing grace of God, that while they themselves are a great sinner, each of us are, that Christ is the great Savior. And he is ready and willing to rescue all who call upon him. Help us to respond to the gospel this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together and sing Amazing Grace. Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you find yourself lost this morning and apart from Christ, blinded by your sin, would you allow him to open your eyes? Take him at his word when he says, all who call upon me will be saved. Will you respond to the gospel this morning as we sing this together? Amazing grace, how sweet sound that saved a wretch like Strange or unusual is going to happen in this moment. I just, just want to urge you right now to examine your faith. Are you walking in these days with the Jesus who poured out amazing grace for us? Do you know him? his resurrection life 
Are you growing in your love for his word and for his church? Do you yearn for more of him in your life day to day? Because he's put that yearning within you. of this moment as you consider these things before God. May each one of us just simply pray this before the Lord. God, if there be anything false to which I am clinging, God, would you remove it from me that I might simply cling to the cross of my Savior. If there be any basis for my living except for this great gospel, may I shed it that I might simply walk in the newness of life you bought for me. In this moment with every head bowed and every eye closed, if it would be your desire before God to be renewed in the gospel of grace and in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you simply before God as an act of worship, it would be your desire to be renewed in that, would you just raise your hand before the Lord? No one looking around, including myself, just in this moment. If you'd just be desiring this morning a freshness and a renewal of your love relationship with Jesus, would you just raise your hand before the Lord? Father God, for each one, God, may you grant the desire of their heart. For I believe that we would not have that desire were it not to come from you. And so, Lord, may we grow in your word. May we grow in our love for you and for one another. And may we live in the grip of amazing grace until that day when you take us home to glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to go out this morning, if, if you are here for the first time or the first time in quite a while, we are having just a brief guest reception in room 101 right before you go out the, those last doors. And we have a great gift for you there, so you'll want to stop by just for a minute. Give us five minutes before you head out to lunch, and we'd love to do that with you. Other than that, God bless you. Let's be dismissed together today.